first of all, I will say, yes, it's a hobby, but I tend to refer to it as an addiction because as much as we try to give it up, it will always be in our blood, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. <laughs> we love it. We, it will never go away. It's something that I think is great because it, it fuels us. And I think that there are, there's a different level of drive and passion in people who are involved in a sport like this because we will do whatever we can to make it happen and make it work. Bring them in on the rail at a jog, please, on the rail at a jog. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of On the Rail podcast. We have another repeating guest with us today. We're super excited to be diving into, I think, a very interesting topic that I know Jenna and her administrators in her Add More Leg group get asked all the time. What do you do for a living? Any side hustles? How much money are you making? All those things we're kind of going to tie together. So I'm super excited to reintroduce Patty. And Patty, if you just want to give a brief introduction again to our listeners, just to kind of get them right for the podcast. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me, ladies. I'm, I'm so happy to be back. I'm really excited for this topic because uh, I'm very passionate about my career, very passionate about horses, and I love how it comes together and we can talk about it together. And I want to congratulate you guys on the amazing job that you've done with the podcast and all that you're doing for the amateur community as well, creating the groups on Facebook and really hosting a, a platform that we can all come together and learn from one another. I think that's extremely motivating and very important. So I really appreciate you having me back. I'm an amateur, an all-around amateur. I, I live in Illinois. Up until three weeks ago, I lived downtown Chicago. I'm sorry, three months ago. Is that what I said? I lived downtown Chicago. And uh, I had gotten a dog last November. We thought that it would be uh, much easier to have a dog in the city than it was. And we fell in love with the dog and decided to move to the suburbs so that the dog could have a yard. So we're a little closer to the barn, which is great. <laughs> the dog has a yard, but uh, I'm, I'm still very close to Chicago. I, I go downtown almost every day for work. But I've been showing quarter horses since I was little, little. I started out showing 4-H. And then I got into open shows and I started showing AQHA when I was 12 years old. And uh, much like many of the amateurs out there, I was DIY until I was in my early 30s. So feel like I understand a, a lot of what uh, gets asked of the Add More Leg group. And I've trained with Valerie Kearns now for 12 years. She's phenomenal to be with. I, I wouldn't be where I am if it wasn't for her. She was the one that found me. My first, I would say, competitive amateur horse that was earning an invitation. We bought him as a two-year-old in 2012 and uh, bought him at the Congress. So we showed him the following year, showed the non-pro threes. That was the first time I was ever top 10 in my life was on uh, the non-pro threes with him. 
And then after we got through the Congress, we started doing the all-around stuff. And in 2015, we were third in the Congress in the showmanship and actually won the level two at the World Show. And then in 2016, we were fifth at the Congress in the showmanship and won the level two horsemanship at the World Show. And had some life events come up, some career decisions I had to make and decided to buy a condo and do some adult things. So I sold him. And about a year later, I got the horse that I have now. We call him Perfect Patrick because he's he's a lot like SpongeBob SquarePants. He's always ready. He's just always Aww. on. He's amazing. <laughs> uh, but his registered name is First One In, Last One Out. And he's he's a very special horse to me. He's been phenomenal. We've accomplished a lot of things. And just a couple of highlights of his career. We With him as a, a three-year-old, we were third place at the world show in the level two horsemanship in 2019. And then uh, in 2021, we were reserved at the Congress in the horsemanship. And uh, I think we were top 10 in the showmanship as well. And then that year at the world show, we were top 10 in all of our classes that we went in. They were all level three. And then Valerie won the level two Western riding with him that year as well. And uh, had a great year last year at the world show. Couldn't show at the Congress due to Valerie judging. And so we're super excited to be going back this year. But this year's been a, a great year so far. We were the national champions in both the showmanship and the horsemanship at the Sun Circuit in Arizona and had a phenomenal horse show at the Madness in May and just won the amateur showmanship at the NSBA World Show. So it's been a great year. Could not be more thrilled with having such a wonderful show partner and uh, just really looking forward to the rest of the year. I love that you won the showmanship at the NSBA world. I feel like our podcast mm -hmm. must be good luck to showmanshippers because <laughs> you guys come on like Meg and then she won the amateur last year at the world show and you won the NSBA. So it's got to be good yeah. fortune, right? Then we had I Paige. Think it is. Oh yeah. And Paige Wacker too. Yeah. She won at yeah. uh, both the paint world and NSBA too. You're totally right. We have some kind of knack for showmanship, I guess. <laughs> it's, the, it's the showmanship podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So would you say showmanship and horsemanship are your two favorite events since you're, you have so much history and success in them or what's your kind of go-to event? I would say that. Yes. I, I love the showmanship. I love the horsemanship. My horse is very, very good in the trail and the Western riding. I have picked those up started showing late last year in the level one and then uh, started showing level two this year so that we could show at the world show. But I've, I've picked up the trail and Western riding. I would say that the Western riding to me is more enjoyable than the trail because the trail is so dang hard, mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but my horse is so good at it that I, I can't not do it. And so he is forcing me to try to become a decent pilot with that event. Do you have any self preparation techniques for you before you go into a big show that you do ahead of time, whether it's a day of or a week before? Gosh, you know, I would say I'm a, I'm an extremely organized person. So I think I know we were chatting before we picked this up here and, you know, horses leave for Congress here pretty soon. I mean, I, I'm already prepped for the Congress, everything from our patterns to I've got, you know, all my show clothes packed. I have every single event that we're doing on my calendar so I can juggle work and horse showing. And I think I just try to prep as much ahead of time as possible so that when I go to these big shows, I don't get overwhelmed with the 
level of preparation that's needed at the horse shows, as well as what's still expected of me in my job and what I have to do with work. So I think for me, it's just consistency in how I get everything prepared and ready and organized. There's something really comfortable about having a routine. I feel like anyway, I like, Mm -hmm. and for sure. Yeah. Getting everything checked off before you even leave the house (laughs) that you feel ready to go. There's so much unexpected that comes up that if you're not organized and you're still trying to get organized and then something unexpected happens, it's really hard to roll with the punches if you're not prepared going into it. And we all know with horse showing, there's a lot that gets thrown at us. So trying to eliminate as many obstacles as possible, I think is really a, a positive. Yeah. There's nothing routine with horse showing once you're at the show, it seems. Other than hurry up and wait, right? Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. I always joke. I mean, I'm uh, diabetic. And so I always joke that the, the only consistent thing about diabetes is that it's never consistent. And that's, you could say the same about horse shows. It's like the only consistent thing about horse shows is that they're never consistent and you kind of have to be able to fly with punches, but exactly. Well, since you talked a little bit about working around your show schedule and work schedule, even at a show like Congress, what is it exactly that you do as a professional? I, today, I work for a public accounting firm and I I do business development for them. So I work with all of our partners throughout our service lines and uh, I'm responsible for growing the business. I I work with my network and work with clients and services that they need. Typically, that's going to be a CFO or a CEO and their direct reports and their initiatives and and everything that they have going on to accomplish the goals within their organization. But I say today, because I've been doing this for four years, I actually went to school to be an accountant and realized very quickly that while I enjoyed accounting in school, who says that? Very interesting. I really enjoyed accounting in school because I enjoyed the principle of it. But when it came down to it, I did not enjoy accounting as a career. And I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my career and with the education because I wanted to become a partner within a public accounting firm so that I could create a life for myself that would allow me to be in the horse world and be in the horse world at the level that I wanted to be at and be able to become financially independent. And so it really kind of threw me for a whirlwind when I was so unhappy actually practicing accounting. Obviously, as I'd mentioned, I'm a very organized person. So as you can imagine, this plan that I had sent out, uh, set up for myself when it wasn't exactly what I thought it was, you know, I figured I have to put some action into place here and figure out what I'm going to do. And I had a, a friend of mine go to lunch and come back and she told me that she had been on a job interview and she didn't think that it was a good fit for her, but she thought that would be a really good fit for me. And it turns out that it was in the staffing and recruiting industry and it was for the accounting profession. And long story short, I really, really enjoyed working with clients and helping them solve their challenges through providing the right talent, the right people, the right teams, I needed the knowledge and the education to do it, but I wasn't practicing accounting. And so I felt like I was still utilizing my education, but I was doing something I really enjoyed. And it was something that 
the more successful I was, the harder I worked, the better results I had, I was able to make more money while doing it. And so I, I found some financial independence that way as well. And I really enjoyed the client aspect of it, but I also wanted to focus on progressing my career within the organization I was at. And so I had a number of opportunities to take leadership roles. I actually traveled for a year for this firm and I did trainings throughout the organization. I think I was about three or four years into my career with this organization. I had been top of the ranks for the producers and had worked a lot with training people within my own branch and in helping them to create sales plans and in how to manage their time and really become efficient in what they're doing. And so there was an opening within this training team and they asked me if I would travel the country and go do trainings that were everything from new hire trainings to management trainings. I worked with underperforming branches. And it was great because I got to interact with a lot of different leaders and learn a lot of different skills. And at the end of the day, it was a very demanding role. I was on the road from Sunday afternoon through Friday afternoon. So as you can imagine, it, it wasn't uh, a time of my life where I could really do much with the horses. I took a couple of years off with the horses and decided to focus on my career and, and take this role. And further myself because it, it, it was able to launch me into some roles that I otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity to do so. And after I did that for about a year, I had moved to Chicago. I was up in Milwaukee at the time and I moved to Chicago and had a, a leadership opportunity with the firm I was at and was in that for about uh, six months or a year. And then I got recruited away to run a privately held staffing firm that was located in Chicago. And I was able to build up their finance division. And so spent a number of years with them, just about 10 years with them, and built a lot of teams, worked with a lot of different people. I felt very, very fortunate to be able to mentor a lot of people. And the company was phenomenal in mentoring me too. They hired a career coach for me. And well, that sounds wonderful and fun. And 80% of the time it was, it was amazing. And the other 20%, I would say, was a little bit like horse showing. You know, it's not always fun. You have to work on yourself. There's things that you really have to focus on that maybe are hard for you, but it's like working out or it's like training a horse. The more you do it, the easier it gets. And I, I was really fortunate to be able to work with a lot of great people and build my network here in Chicago and build teams and work with a lot of different people. So that was really an exciting time in my life. And I had actually done a lot of work with who is now my boss at this public accounting firm. We'd referred a lot of business back and forth. And one day he took me to lunch and said that they were adding to the team and he would like me to join the team. And while it was not a leadership role, it was an individual contributor role. It was something that um, was really exciting for me because I I loved working with clients, you know, back to the original days of my career in the staffing industry. I just really loved working with clients and helping them solve their problems. And going to a role like this was something that I would be able to do on a level that I'd never done before. And so I joined this firm in August of 2019. And then we know what happened about eight months later. Mm -hmm. The lovely pandemic hit and the world changed. <laughs> And I think that's where I really think it was 
a benefit to what we do in the horse world that the world got more virtual because there's a lot of things that we can do now that we couldn't do pre-COVID. And I think that there is a lot to be said for flexibility and for this newfound flexibility that we were able to do. I mean, prior to, we wouldn't be having the Zoom meeting, right? Zoom meetings weren't really a thing in the past and right. they are now. Yeah, 100%. Everything has gone way more remote and virtual, which is nice. It has its huge benefits for sure. And also, of course, like some detriments because it is, can't really turn it off either. You don't have an excuse <laughs> a lot of times. Absolutely. It is. Absolutely. The flexibility is there. Definitely. So you have a lot of background, obviously, in the career area, especially with staffing and whatnot. And I think it comes up in our amateur group all the time is what does everybody do for a living to pay for this hobby? You know, it's hobby for us amateurs. It's an expensive hobby. You know, it's always kind of the million dollar question is like, how do you afford to do this? And so I think this conversation with Patty will be great because she has some insights on this stuff. So maybe just to start out, Patty, what's your kind of like overarching thoughts regarding career paths for people that are interested in showing horses at the higher levels? Well, first of all, I will say, yes, it's a hobby, but I tend to refer to it as an addiction because as much as we try to give it up, it will always be in our blood, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> we love it. We, it will never go away. It's something that I think is great because it it fuels us. And I think that there are there's a different level of drive and passion in people who are involved in a sport like this because we will do whatever we can to make it happen and make it work. And that that's different for everyone. You know, not everyone wants to go to the world show. Not everyone wants to show. And I think that's totally fine. I think that you should do what makes you happy and what you want to do with your horse because it's that connection with your horse that that brings the enjoyment for you. But my comment on the career path and what I feel the overarching message is, I will tell you that it is different for everybody, just like their goals with their horse is different for everybody. And you have to focus on what it is that you feel passionate about when it comes to a job as well. Because there are times where you're going to have really hard days at work. There are times when you're going to be exhausted. There are times when you're not going to want to go back to work and to really enjoy what you do is going to make those days fewer and it's going to make them easier to get through. The biggest thing when I'm talking to, I, I've been talking to a lot of youth right now that are going from the, the youth to the amateur and they're focusing on what they should be doing with college and what kinds of degrees and the one thing I will tell you is there really is no substitute for education. It is very hard to get a job in this world without having a degree. And with a degree that you can go and be flexible with and one that is a little more transparent throughout different industries. And so there's a lot of roles within accounting, within business within IT and in marketing, that you can be very flexible. There's a lot of opportunity 
that is out there for individuals with a, with a business background or a STEM background, right? Science, technology, engineering, and, and math. And there truly are flexible positions, I think, in any profession. But on the business side, I think it's a little easier than something like on the healthcare side, where you have to be in person every day, you're working with patients, or you're in a role where you really have to have that direct connection because of what you're doing. Now, that being said, that doesn't mean that if you have a position that requires 100% of your time in person, that doesn't mean that you can't get flexibility from the employer that you're with or with the job that you have. And that's where it's really important to understand as you're going into these types of professions, which ones are going to be satisfying for you in a career and which ones are going to be satisfying in a, in a flexibility in a way that you can continue to do your horse sport as well. When it comes to talking about college degrees and pass in college, it's, it still slays me when we're, you know, like 17, 18, we're supposed to pick at that time, what we're going to do for the rest of our lives, allegedly. And I mean, I myself, I don't work in a field where I got my degree in, although there were a lot of benefits to it and there's stuff I use to this day. But do you advise people? I guess advise is the wrong word because you could never go wrong with any kind of business degree. I understand that. But is it more about being marketable as a human that you have either the experience or the education, that type of thing to be valuable to a potential employer? Or do you think it's actually the degree field, if that makes sense? So I think that question, well, the answer to that question for me is twofold. So, you know, I don't, I also don't work in the profession that I got my degree in. It, for me to have my degree is extremely helpful in what I do, but I'm not an accountant. I, you know, was too credit shy of taking my CPA and 20 years later, I'm, I'm not a partner at a CPA firm, right? Which is what I wanted to do. There are a lot of different avenues that you can pursue with your degree. And so as these young adults are looking at where they should be focusing their education, these colleges should be helping them with the most marketable degree. And we know that not every college is great at that. And so I would suggest having them think about what they're passionate about and what it is that they are, what what comes natural to them. I wouldn't say easy, but I would say natural. Because for me, accounting wasn't easy, but it was natural. It all made sense. Even a difficult situation, I was able to figure out because it just made sense to me. Now, obviously, if we have degrees that we don't utilize, we want to be, we want to have an education that is still going to be transferable into the world. However, a lot of what individuals end up doing that is not related to their jobs, they got opportunities because they had that degree. And something that is really critical to employers as they're looking at their degrees, yes, it's the degree, but somebody who has an, a degree shows that they can accomplish something, they can finish something. And that is very translatable into the professional world and in, into the the world through the employer's eyes. They really want to look at what they were doing as well during school, because it's not as important to have a 4.0 grade point average if you did nothing else. You know, did you have a job? Were you a part of any extracurricular activities? Did you play sports? Did you run a club? 
four unit sorority or fraternity, all of that plays into it. And so the college years really show to an employer the flexibility as well that you have and what you can accomplish. And I can tell you most employers that I worked with in the staffing world would take somebody who has a 3.0 GPA, worked through college, was a part of a a club, whether that was their, you know, the marketing club or the accounting club or was in a fraternity or sorority over the 4.0 GPA student. And so in today's day and age, there's it's so easy to put so much pressure on grades alone, but grades aren't the only thing that employers look at. Well, if you're someone that's either young, we'll say young, but young to let's mid thirties, more established, more established (laughs) in their career, mid twenties, mid (laughs) thirties. So if you're mid thirties, you've probably at least had one career by now, but maybe looking to change or pivot, whatever it would be. What makes you more attractive to jobs that are friendly to the horse world? Yes. And this is a question that I tend to get by the age range that you're, you're saying. And I also know some individuals who changed the focus of their career even later in their experience. And I think that it's it's never too late to make a change and it's never too late to focus on something that either is going to make you happier or that you feel is going to be better for your lifestyle. And so back to talking about how COVID had changed the working environment, it's also changed the opportunities that are available. Consulting firms look to hire people a lot of times that come out of the areas that they consult in. So if you're a healthcare professional, for example, or you work for a healthcare organization, there are a lot of healthcare consulting firms out there that hire people that have those healthcare backgrounds because they're able to understand what the day-to-day is like. And they're able to be a part of these teams that can help other organizations in the journeys that they're on. A lot of consulting organizations have a hybrid model and they're able to work both in person as well as virtual. And these hybrid roles uh, a lot of times provide more flexibility to be able to, to go to the horse shows or to be able to have time where you can spend with your horse. Now, there are a lot of positions where people do focus on either going fully remote or they, they don't live in a large area, right? They, they don't live in Chicago or they don't live in St. Louis or Dallas or, you know, Columbus. N- name any city where you can find a larger firm to go work for in this type of environment. There are also roles that are fully remote that potentially would be a good fit because you don't have to go in person. Or if you do have to go in person, it's once a quarter and you can fly there. So how that's changed over the last three years, three and a half years is significant because most employers did not have a lot of these options beforehand and and they do now. Liz, when you were working remote for a period of time, and I know it was a few days a week, and then you were in the office a few days a week. Yeah. But did you have Teams or Zoom meetings, or was it more you could do your job without having to interact with people in your workplace, or how was it set up for you? It was kind of both. So when we would, let's just say when we were fully remote, we did have once a week Teams meeting. 
And then once we started going back in the office, the entire office would have a meeting just to, you know, touch base, get on the same page. So we did a little bit of both, but mostly we wouldn't have to do any sort of meetings at all. We could just do our normal daily functions. And then just that once a week phone call or teams meeting, I guess it wasn't a phone phone call, but yeah. So it was kind of nice just to be in your own little space and doing remote work. I do love the opportunity to work remote. It is very nice. (laughs) It's great. The, you know, it's great for the flexibility and the ability to kind of set your own schedule. The one thing I did miss when I was fully remote is I I like being around people. I like being around my my teams and the people I work with. So I did miss that. And I do, you know, we're back in a very hybrid model. I go into the office probably three days a week. I'm either in the office or at clients. And it is really great to at least have the option to be back in person. I feel like we all get so much energy from that. It's like going to a horse show. You know, you can ride at home for for weeks at a time, and then you go to a horse show, and it's a whole another level of energy, and it it it's great for flexibility. But I'm really glad that we're back to uh, at least this hybrid model where we're in person a little bit. Did you set out to find a career that would fund your horse hobby, or were you more focused on your career, and then it allowed you to show horses where you do today? Every decision I made about what I was going to do with my post high school life (laughs) revolved around horses. (laughs) Every single decision, (laughs) everything from my degree to where I went to school to how I was going to fast forward, so to say my career so that I could afford horses faster. Every single decision has always revolved around the horses and you know, throughout my career and throughout my adult life, I've I've had to do adult things, which means make difficult decisions, which includes taking some time off. And I've taken a, a number of years off throughout my amateur career. And I will say it's something that both I, I had to do from a career perspective of I have to do this to put the time in so that I can get to a place where I'm able to do it as well as financially. I had to choose, am I going to buy a place to live or am I going to continue to live in a studio apartment for the rest of my life and just show horses? And, you know, it's, it's, I knew that the horses would always be there. I knew that I could always go back to them, but every decision that I made was because, you know, I, I wanted to be able to get to a place in my career where I can do this and I can do it comfortably. And, you know, it's it hasn't been easy. I mean, there's been a lot of difficult weeks and I think a lot of difficult decisions. But at the end of the day, I've been happy with every outcome and I've been extremely fortunate to find a career that I, I love. I've had some phenomenal mentors in my life. I work with some of the smartest people in the world who I learn from every single day. And I don't think I would be in my career where I am and as successful as I am, if it wasn't for the horses, they have fueled my drive to be where I'm at in my career. When you took a couple of years off, did you still own any horses or were you completely out of it for those period of time? Early in my career, I still owned a horse 
and I boarded her close to me. This is when I lived up in Milwaukee and I was able to board her fairly close to me. She actually unfortunately had a, a really bad ear infection and had uh, was in the ICU for about three weeks and then had about a year long recovery oh, um, coming out of that. Oh, it was, it was, it was quite interesting. <laughs> so the majority of my time then was spent making sure that her care was, was taken care of. And she was with a phenomenal woman who just cared for her as if she was her own. And so I, I was able to take time off then. And then the, the second time was, you know, when I was purchasing a condo and focusing on just other aspects of my career. And then I was completely horseless. My, I, that's when I sold and earned an, earned an invitation and was between him and perfect Patrick. So on that note, I think honestly, that's probably where a majority of us amateurs struggle is maybe knowing that to move further in our career and to do better later, we would have to take a step back from the horses. On that note, for you personally, was that maybe like a no brain decision? Like, it was hard, yes, but like, it just made sense. So you did it. Was it hard for you to make that call? And then on the other side of that, for those that maybe can't make that decision, because I know I get way too emotionally invested in my horses, what could you say to them maybe to help spark that career decision and going all in for a while to come back to the horses? Because I think we end up losing a lot of people that know they have to make that decision and then just never come back. Do you know what I'm saying there? I think I've yeah. asked too many questions in one, but... I No, I, I think I feel where you're going. And if I don't answer part of it, just steer me back that way. So it was extremely difficult for me to make that decision. You know, when I made that decision, when I had the mayor that was in the ICU, I mean, that decision was kind of made for me. I was so early in my career. I mean, I couldn't even afford her care, quite frankly, at the time. And, and luckily, my mom helped me with that. But I had to take a step back. And I knew that if I slowed down there, there being horses a little bit, I could fuel the engine that <laughs> allowed me to do this. And it was really difficult. I mean, I was on the phone with my mom sobbing, not knowing how I was going to care for this poor animal that just obviously didn't ask to be in the situation. And I couldn't afford to do anything about it. And what was I going to do? And, you know, she said, well, what do you want me to do? And I said, well, I need some help if you can help me. And uh, she agreed that if I paid her back, that she would help me. And she helped me get through that so that I could get to a point where I had my animal back. And, you know, it was, it was really hard to make that decision about what to do with the animal because I loved her so much, but I could not afford it. And, you know, I could have chosen to put her down, but I chose to try to get her better. And so I think, Liz, I, I get super emotionally invested in, in all of my horses too. And I think that there are some very difficult decisions that we have to make along this journey. And sometimes it makes sense to make them. And other times you have to make the tough decision that maybe you don't want to make. I mean, I ended up keeping that mare for a long time. I ended up showing her afterwards. I bred her twice. I got, you know, two babies out of her. And I ended up, I kept her after she was, she ended up getting sick again with the same issue. Went through another surgery. At this point in my career, I didn't have to ask my mom for money, which was nice. <laughs> I was able to do it on my own. <laughs> 
But, you know, I ended up donating her to Partners for Progress, one of the therapeutic writing programs up here. I should say at least her because I, I kept her because I wanted to make sure that if this happened again, that I, I was the one to make the decision about um, if she was going to be put down or not. So I kept her and leased her to Partners for Progress, and she did a wonderful job for them for about two and a half years. And then unfortunately, it happened again, and, and that's when I decided to to put her down. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't fair to her to go through yet another surgery and, and deal with all that. But I think that the emotional part of what we deal with is just inherent in us because we love these animals. That's why we do it. And, you know, if we didn't have the passion behind it, you know, it wouldn't mean so much to us and we probably wouldn't be so competitive and we wouldn't focus on the next goals and sacrificing everything in our lives that we do. But to have I think what's really critical is to have other pieces of your life that you feel equally as passionate about to help even that out. And it's really hard if you have a job that you don't enjoy to feel that passion and to feel that way about what you're doing with the horses. And it's easier said than done, I think, because you could say, well, Everybody hates their job or everybody loves their job. It's all in how you look at it. But if you are able to work with people, I, I think mentors are extremely important. If you're able to work with people that can help you understand in your professional life how to navigate your career and how to really find something that you you don't feel like you're sacrificing to do something is is a big a big game changer in how you can equate the two. I know I missed one of your questions in there and I probably got off on a tangent that makes no sense, but. <laughs> no, that was perfect. Perfect. I think for me personally, when I've thought back about the times I've had to step away a little bit from showing and I'll completely being transparent, I've been able to have, you know, the horses at home, whether it's my house now or, they could be at my parents' house when I was in my early 20s, when I was doing finishing up school and whatnot. Going into it was traumatizing, you know, like so stressful, so emotional to think like, oh my gosh, I'm going to step back and not be in the show pen or not dedicate time to horses. And I think like when it comes to life has to be a balance and it doesn't mean everything's in balance all the time, all at the same time. But if you want to further one area, then something else has to give. Like saying yes to one thing is saying no to something else. And once I'm into it, just like currently speaking, I didn't show last year. I'm not showing this year and probably not showing next year either because I, between horses and waiting on my yearling to probably be a three-year-old before he really shows. And while he's here at my house and I get to enjoy them, I'm not in the show pen. And honestly, I'm fine. You know, it's really hard to think about when you're actively showing. I remember being like, you know, a high school kid and thinking like, oh, I'm going to college and something has to give and I won't be showing as much. But it's almost like the thought of it is more scary than the reality of it. To me, anyway, I don't know if, Patty, that was something you felt too. But I was like, I, there's seasons of life and it's never been, it's all worked out. Like everything just kind of works out. Absolutely. And it's, it is hard and, and you do have to sacrifice. And I feel like for whether you're a DIY amateur or you have a trainer, I mean, 
let's not kid ourselves. Most of us have to work for a living. You know, we have to provide for ourselves. And there are times where your life is just in a different state than, you know, which it should be. Because if you're growing and evolving, things will be changing. And, you know, I remember I when I graduated college, when I was getting ready to graduate, I had a horse at the time that I had had as late in my youth career and then early in my amateur career when I was, when I was still in college. And I had raised him. Um, I bought him as a yearling. And I think he was seven when I sold him. And he was like a piece of me. I mean, this horse and I were so connected and he was so wonderful. And it was, it was so hard for me to sell him, but selling him meant that I got to pay off my student loan and that I got to focus on being able to move. I wanted to move to Milwaukee and really start my career. And it was one of the hardest decisions in my life, but I chose to do it. And he went to a wonderful lady. She was a uh, mid-youth kid. I think she was in the 14, 18, maybe around 15 or 16 at the time. And they had a wonderful show career together. Her sister showed him. He went on to, to live a wonderful life. And so it, you know, it, it's so devastating the moment that you're thinking about it. But then you realize, you know, everything tends to work out. One of my best friends is Joe Witt. And I'm very fortunate to have had met him when I, I think I was 19 when I met him and he has been such a mentor to me. But one of the things that he always said is, Patty, everything happens for a reason and everything works out for the best. And it's just something that has stuck with me because if you're making decisions for the right reasons and you're focused on the next step and the outcomes, it really is part of a decision as it is to make. It usually is the right decision. And even if it's not, there's never a wrong decision because you're always learning and growing from it. Definitely. And I think if nothing else, there is few better feelings than feeling like you fund and support your hobby, your horse hobby, your horse addiction, as Patty said, all on your own. <laughs> like that is, to me, it's very empowering to be mm -hmm. able to not have to rely on anybody for that. Just don't tell your financial advisor because no. they will think, oh my God, <laughs> they will think you are so crazy for what we do. <laughs> well, we know we are. We know we're like, yes, we I know, I we, know are. we are. And I'm going to, I'm going to do it anyway. So <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> I always say it's why I work when, you know, the partners I work with, the clients I work with, they know I do this. And, you know, every, every time they, they say, God, isn't that expensive? I'm like, yep. Yes. Why I work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's the meme? That's like, we work so our horses can have nice things. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, um, I know we're like almost on that brink of an hour with you. So I have a few more things that I think people would love to hear. I know you said that you've worked hard through your career so you could be financially independent. So what is your approach when it comes to the horse showing on budgeting and your financial planning so you can continue showing at that high level? We focus on the horse shows that we're going to go to every year, about a year ahead of time. And I roughly know what each horse show is going to cost. And so I look at the potential schedule that we have laid out or that Valerie has laid out for us. 
And I choose the shows that I feel are going to be best where for where I'm at with the horse that I have and how much those are going to cost and, and how much I want to allocate that year to horse showing. And so, you know, the fixed cost, the training, the shoeing, you know, you can factor in X amount for vet bills. I, I set that aside. <laughs> And that, well, let's hope that we can. The right? X factor. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. There, horses are as predictable, Jenna, as your diabetes, right? I mean, right. they just, yeah. So, and then, you know, focus on the horse shows that I would like to go to that year and allocate the dollars to those horse shows. We did, I, I should say, I did a lot fewer horse shows this year because I did the bigger horse shows. I did Arizona. I did the Madness. We went to St. Paul, Corp Challenge in St. Paul, and then NSBA, and we're going to do the Congress and World Show. And those were those were my horse shows for the year. And, you know, I'm not one of those that can go every weekend. I can't go every weekend. I can't go every month. I can't go to every top 10 big horse show. I pick the ones that uh, I think that are going to be great for the horse where I like the facilities and quite frankly, where I know my friends are going to go because I also do this to have fun. So if I'm going to go, I want to make sure my friends are there too. So (laughs) horse show friends are the best. They are the best. Absolutely. I feel like fun isn't often said much anymore. So what, this is probably off the wall. And completely random that I just thought of. But when you guys go out to the shows, what are you doing for fun? And what do you hope that accomplishes on that fun end for you on the shows that you're picking, if that makes sense? I would tell you that fun for me is honestly just being able to spend time with the people I want to spend time with. And I mean, that could be that we get to hang out for an evening at the stall and have a couple of drinks or go to dinner, or we can sit and watch the horse show. You know, we have the Congress coming up and I mean, that horse show is absolutely bananas, right? But if we can sit and watch a class or two together or go and, you know, go shopping together, or I know... One of my best friends who's always there, sometimes she just comes and watches their practice and we get to hang out. So I think just being able to be in the presence and have time with them and get to talk to them and have them in your wind picture if you want them in your wind picture or just go do a couple of things. If you get five minutes to run to Congress Hall and pick up a pair of jeans or whatever it might be. But, you know, I think as I have a lot of friends in the barn too, which is great. So we get to just hang out at the barn, but these horse shows where we can all come together and some of them have exhibitor parties and so forth that you can go to, which is great, but it's fun to just hang out. I don't know. I don't know that we do anything spectacular or amazing or earth shattering. We just spend time together. I love it. I just know that a lot of us spend so much money and I think fun sometimes is not anything that we think of putting first Obviously, this is a hobby and we all love horses, but I think we get caught up sometimes in the amount of money that we spend. And I just thought it would be interesting to see your perspective of what you enjoy while horse showing. I have always said we spend way too much money doing this to not enjoy it. So I make sure that I enjoy it because if I'm not enjoying it, I'm doing something wrong. 
Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I was like, well, that, yep. That hits home for me from time to time, but yep. So what would you say to somebody as far as negotiating a salary, benefits, bonuses, any of that type of thing? And if they're embarking on a new career, not specifics, of course, but I personally find, and it's probably my personality type more so than being a woman, but it's hard to argue for your worth or your value or, you know, so do you have any tips for people or young professionals on just like really getting what they're worth from a employer? Absolutely. I think it's really great. There's a lot of states and I think that we'll see a lot more states come through with this, but a lot of states have laws already implemented that they have to post the salary range of the position, which I think is great because there's so many times where there's a position maybe that you see that you're interested in and you apply and you get a call and it's a significant amount less than what you were thinking, or they ask you, hey, what are you making? And they try to give you then a salary range based on what you're making versus what the role should pay based on the roles that are out there. And then you have negotiating power to be able to know where you fall within that range. You should always look for a pay increase when you are switching positions. It's something that you can negotiate based on tenure. You can negotiate it based on responsibilities. You can negotiate it based on flexibility, right? If there's, if they expect you to maybe mentor a team or they want you to take on more work, right? You could maybe say, well, I can mentor the team and I can take on X amount of work. This is the range that I'm looking at based on the level of work and the amount of work that I'll be doing. The individuals are graduating college and they're looking at positions and they're looking at different offers that they may receive. And I think that this goes for experienced professionals too. You can always ask for more. You know, if you don't ask, the answer is always no. You can always ask for more. If they ask you what you are looking for, you should always say the top end of that range because you can't ask for more once you've already given them a number. And so you should have a number in your head and ask for that. And if they offer you something that's less than that, you can always counter. You can always ask for more. I wouldn't ask for more in an aspect that you could put the offer in jeopardy, especially if it's something that you really want, if it's a position that you really want. You want to be careful about how aggressive you are in your negotiations, but you can always ask for more. And and you should, if you haven't asked for more, you're probably leaving dollars on the table. And there are other areas that you can focus on as well. You can focus on vacation days. You can focus on the hybrid work. Um, I know every employer that I've ever talked to prior to even joining them knows that I show horses. They know that I um, travel to do this. And so for me going into these roles, I always ask them, you know, are you okay with a flexible work arrangement when I am gone? There are times where I have downtime where I'm able to work. I would like to be able to do that. I don't want to use every single vacation day just for the horses. I'd like to be able to do some other things too. And so I want to make sure that I'm not burning all my vacation on the horses. And I also want to stay caught up at work. It's no fun coming back from a horse show and being just completely buried in work either. And so being able to stay caught up while you're at the horse shows is is also something that is a nice benefit to have. But 
I think that you'll find through the negotiations of employment offers, employers expect it. You know, they don't expect you to take the first offer that you're given. And sometimes it's really exciting to get that offer and you just want it so bad. But if it's not exactly what you were thinking, I would talk to them about what else is flexible, what else they can do, if they could give you a little more money or if they could give you a little more time off or whatever it might be. Typically, you'll find that that you'll get a little more than you were expecting. Where do you consider enough experience in a job to be more credible? For So for context, when I took my first, like, I guess, corporate-ish type job in my early 20s, I, the salary for the entire year was less than $30,000. So obviously can't show too many horses on that or keep horses or you're lucky to eat on that. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, and this was, this was, you know, well over a decade ago now. So, you know, I'm getting up there, but at the time, while I was very disappointed in that, but I was also like, look, I'll get my foot in the door. I'll work my rear off, you know, I'll, prove my, you know, pay my dues, prove myself. And they did progress me through the company fairly well. I don't think the pay increase was enough to warrant the amount of work I was, you know, was getting on. And I appreciated actually the challenge of the work, but ultimately that's where it kind of came down to was like, I'm being required to do more work than what I feel like I'm being compensated for in a fair manner. And this was after five plus years with them. So how do you recommend to somebody young of like, you can't come in as a young professional with little experience, even with a college degree and expect to get, you know, like primo salary outside of a few probably career fields, of course. But where's that kind of line drawn of like, where do you need to get serious about considering yourself for salary negotiations or moving on to a different position, that type of thing? This is another topic that I think has changed a lot in in the last, I would call it decade. You know, I'm like you, Jenna. I mean, 20 years ago, my first job was, I think, like $34,000 a year or something like that, you know, and it's Mm -hmm. like, yeah, I was lucky to pay my rent and buy groceries on that, right? And I think that's why you saw young professionals move jobs more significantly than you had in the past, because they would get a pay increase when they would go to the next position. I think that employers have realized that. And they don't want to lose good performers. Employers do not want to lose individuals who are strong in the team, who are dedicated, who jive well if you're client-facing, who the clients love. And so that's where I think the individual does have the ability to negotiate. And it's not about an ultimatum. It's not about going out and finding another job and saying, hey, employer, I got this job for X amount of dollars. Like, can you match it? It's about having those conversations before you get to that point. Counter offers are usually something that end up going south. And there's a statistic that's out there, and I forget what the exact statistic is, but there is the majority of people who accept it, an actual counter offer are gone from that organization within six months. And it's a number of reasons. One, on the employee side, Usually they already have one foot out the door, and so they're going to be leaving anyway. And they're not as dedicated to the job. They're not happy. They want to look at something else, and so they continue to look. So they they accept the counter offer, but they continue to look. On the employer side, the trust with that employee is not there like it was. 
and it can be harder to progress within the organization. It can be harder to have conversations about career pathing and about how to succeed in the job when they know that you were just about ready to leave. Not saying that it doesn't happen and that there aren't times where there is a counteroffer that's accepted and it ends up working out just fine. But I encourage people to have those conversations prior to getting to that point. One, job interviewing is exhausting. And so if you're going through a full round of interviewing to get to that offer stage, that is a lot of time, effort, and energy that you could be putting into your current job and probably getting promoted or getting further ahead than if you were doing that. If you have an uh, open and honest dialogue with your boss, with your mentor, whomever can help you in your career pathing, it is really, really important to explain to them what you're looking for, what is important to you, because they a lot of times can map that out for you. I know when I had this conversation when I was 23 years old and the boss I had at the time who was a wonderful mentor to me knew I showed horses, I said, I need to know what I have to do to get to six figures as fast as I can. And she mapped it out for me. It was just like my college advisor where they were like, okay, you want to graduate by May of 2004? Here's the classes you have to take. You know, she mapped it out for me and she sat down with me and I was like, okay, this is going to be hard. It's going to be challenging, but I'm going to do it. And if you can have a dialogue like that with your current employer, I think that you'll find that you're going to be happier in the long run with how it turns out than if you take a, a counter offer to them or if you try to leave just to make more money. Very good advice. But again, that's just my opinion based on the experiences that I've had. (laughs) Well, you definitely have your experience as a professional yourself and as a recruiter for staffing. So it's not like you don't know what you're talking about. So that's perfect. As we begin to wrap up, what are a few key pieces of advice for someone trying to balance a demanding career and showing horses? Well, and again, this, you know, this is my perspective and this is how I have focused on on my profession and my passion with the horses. You know, I have a trainer because I am not able to do it all myself and I know I'm not able to do it all myself. I know that there are people who really like to do it themselves. And so what I do is going to be very different than what somebody does who has their horses at their place or, you know, goes to horse shows on their own. You know, I focus on during the work week, it is my work week. And, you know, I work sometimes 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And I can't go ride my horse at night. I can't go, you know, focus on practicing or getting ready. And so for me, it is all about my job during the week. And I focus everything from my weekly schedule to my daily schedule. You know, I typically work out in the morning, I get ready for work. I work all day long. A lot of times I have to do events and and have dinners or or so forth that don't get me home until 10 o'clock at night. And so I stay organized that way. And then when I'm at the horse shows, I really try to compartmentalize when I am practicing. That is it. I am practicing. I leave my phone. I put my out of office on. I make sure people know I am not reachable right now. And I am doing, this is what I'm doing. I will get back to you (laughs) when I'm back in my computer or back in my phone. And then 
as I'm able to schedule in working or taking calls or whatever it might be from the horse shows, I make sure that if it's a day that I'm showing, it's a call with a client and a partner, I make sure the partner knows I may or may not be on because I might be showing my horse or I might be getting ready to show my horse. And they're okay with that. You know, I make sure to set it up early enough ahead of time so that everybody has set expectations on what is happening and what is needed. And I think it's just all about communication. Good parting wisdom. I think people, there's two sides of the coin. Of course, you have the ones that do it themselves. And then you have the ones that have trainers, full-time trainers. And there's some amount of misunderstanding between the two groups. And I don't, it's not always adversarial, but for some people it becomes, it's almost like childcare. It's like at some point you have to pay somebody to take care of your children so you can go do your job every day. And so I'm always just trying to remind people that nobody knows what the context of your story is. And I think there's probably some DIYers that say it must be nice to be able to have a horse in full-time training, but there's probably some professionals that work all the time and couldn't have the time to dedicate to having their horse at home or have the facilities for a horse at home. And those people could probably look at some of the DIYers and be like, wow, it'd be really nice to be able to ride your horse every day and interact with them. So yeah, it goes both ways (laughs) for sure. Always just like to try to provide different perspectives, but Oh, I totally agree. I mean, I would love to ride my horse every day. I'd love to be able to take a break throughout the day and go out and see him and and be able to get a break in there. But my life just doesn't allow for that. And I grew up on a small horse farm. And so for me personally, when I got into my professional career, I didn't want that. I didn't want one day to own my own horse farm or to have my own facility I truly wanted to outsource it. And I wanted to have one horse that I focused on that I showed. And that was my goal. And that is how I built my life around it. And so I think it is a lot of times it's hard to see somebody else's life or live in their shoes or see their, you know, understand their perspective. But I worked really hard in in the initial part of my career doing the DIY piece and focusing on trying to do everything. And it just, I realized it was just too much and I couldn't do it all like that. And that I had to figure something else out if I wanted to do that. And so that's why I made the decisions that I made around getting my horse in full-time training and talking about the goals I wanted to accomplish and then ultimately creating a path to get there. And I feel like the path that I've gotten or gone down with the horses is is very similar to that conversation I had with my very early on mentor at work, my boss that created that roadmap for me. When I first went to Valerie, she said, what are your goals? And I told her what my goals were and we created a path. And, you know, if you are able to create a path there, there's always a way to get there. There's always a way to focus in on it. But everybody's life is different. Everybody's situation is different. And I think the more people you talk to, the more inspiration you get. And I think the more ideas that you get as well. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, Liz, do you have any other comments or questions for Patty before we wrap up? No, I appreciate this insight. It's very, I think a lot of people are going to relate to it. And it's always good talking to you. So it was a great one. Well, thank you, ladies. It was wonderful talking to you. And I hope that there's something in there that 
inspire someone or help someone. And if there's anything I can ever do or help anybody, I'm always more than happy to talk to people and have conversations. And, you know, I, I just, I love the horse show community. I love the horse community and uh, I especially love the amateur community. So thanks for having me on again. I really appreciate it. If someone wanted to get a hold of you, what's the best way? Is it Facebook Messenger or what do you prefer? Facebook Messenger is great. So my Facebook is just Patty Bogash. There you go. Easy enough. Easy and Yep. <laughs> All righty. Well, Patty, best of luck at Congress to you and Perfect Patrick. We wish you all the big wins, trophies, top tens, the good things. And um, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks so much, ladies. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. All right, that'll be your class. Bring them in and line them up.